people are sending shoebox gifts filled with the good news of Jesus Christ. Fueled by the power of prayer, shoeboxes are traveling to the ends of the earth, bringing joy through a simple gift to over 100 million precious children. Shoebox gifts are shining a light into communities all around the world, bringing good news and great joy with Operation Christmas Child. I want the children of the world to know. I want their parents to know that God loves them. He hasn't turned his back on them. He cares for them, and he wants them to be with him in heaven. That's what it's all about. These gifts bring joy not only to the hands that receive the shoeboxes, but also those hands that give. People all over the country are excited to pack shoebox gifts. When I look at these boxes, I just see thousands of smiling kids. It's an opportunity for the children to learn about Christ by just one simple gift. We're here at a processing center where volunteers have traveled from all over the country just to be a part of this special project. I think it's an awesome opportunity to change the world. Going to the ends of the earth. Shoeboxes are carried by any means necessary to that one special child waiting a world away. Veronica and her siblings found themselves abandoned at an orphanage in Mexico after both of their parents were sent to prison. When I received my shoebox, God sent it for me. I could see how God, through Operation Christmas Child, He's not just changing my life, He's changing a lot of kids' lives. I remember three years ago when Veronica received her shoebox. Now she is a teacher in the greatest journey. It was never enough for us to go in, hand a child a shoebox, share the gospel with them, and then leave. We developed this curriculum, The Greatest Journey, a 12-week discipleship program for the kids that make decisions for Christ. After completing The Greatest Journey, children are blessed in a graduation ceremony where they receive a certificate and a Bible in their own language. The Greatest Journey is saying, Jesus loves you. You are a somebody. But I truly believe we are only seeing just the beginning of this project. Because the Lord, He's got something that is beyond our imagination. Into the millions and into the billions. And these children will change the world.
Every shoebox is important. You know, they're all different. There's no two shoeboxes alike, kind of like these snowflakes. No two snowflakes are alike. But every shoebox is important because when you pack that box and you fill it with your love for these kids around the world, and when you pray for the child who's going to get your box, God hears those prayers and God answers those prayers. You say, I want the children of the world to know that God loves them and he has not forgotten them. And I want to thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for being a part of Operation Christmas Child. God bless you and a Merry Christmas. We are excited again this year to participate in the ministry of Operation Christmas Child. And we hope that each of you will prayerfully consider building a shoebox or even two for some children around the world who are in need. It may be the only Christmas gift that they ever receive, perhaps in their whole lives, not even that year. So we're so pleased that um, God has provided a way that we can serve them in this way. I want to welcome each one of you. I want to send a special welcome to those who are visiting for homecoming or parents weekend. We're so excited to have all of you here. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God together. Where many a dream has died Like a tree planted by the water We never will run dry So live in water flowing through God we thirst for more of you Fill our hearts and flood our souls With one desire Just to Don't 
With tender heart, 
You call me out upon the waters, the great My soul will rest in 
Father, we are in awe of all that you are. The very idea that we are yours, that you are ours, that you desire relationship with us, is almost beyond what we can understand. We praise you, Lord, for your creation, for the ways that you work in each of our lives every day, and the ways that you are continually drawing us to you. We pray that you would speak into our minds and our hearts this morning. And may we be open to receive all that you have to teach us. May you be glorified through our worship. It is in your most holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God just a portion of all that he has blessed us with. Creation to the cross. 
our practice for a while to open up the altar rail as we pray together. This morning, if you would like to come and offer your prayers here at the altar rail, please join me. Father, we're astounded by your grace. A grace that's difficult for us to describe and comprehend and yet changes our lives. We come today in gratitude and thanksgiving for your wondrous grace. Father, as we gather today, there are a lot of needs represented in our lives, people connected to us in the world. We pray today, Father, particularly for Bruce Brenneman and Bill Roski. We pray for Matt Bissett, for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, and for Linda Roth and Alton Shea and Isla Shea, for Dick Gould and Edna Howard, for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler. We ask for your healing in each of them. We pray for for their caregivers, that you will give them strength and that they would know the presence of your spirit with them. We pray, Father, that you will help us and those connected to us in the various struggles that we face in life, whether it would be anxiety, fear, 
is facing the difficulties of a fallen world. Give us grace to trust you, your power and your presence. Father, we can't help but feel such sorrow and pain and grief about so much that's happening in our world. Violence, terrorism, famine, poverty, drought, refugees, and so much apathy about all of it. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of concern. And we pray that you will bring your spirit to bear on all of the needs of our world. That you would bring peace where there's war and violence. And that you would bring healing where there is sickness and pain. And that you would bring food and drink and shelter where those are needs. We do pray for the ongoing Ebola virus and ask that you would bring an end to it. That you would comfort all who are suffering from the pain of this virus and that you would help those who are giving care and who are risking themselves to be there, that you would give them strength and the ability to, to do what needs to be done and that you would bring an end to this great pain. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom face great opposition We think especially for Pastor Stan and the church in Uzbekistan. As they are facing persecution and difficulties and opposition, we ask that you would give them strength. Help them to know of our love, our support, our prayers. May your church continue to grow strong and be courageous in the midst of opposition. And may what we see in our brothers and sisters who face things that we have no idea about. May their courage and their trust and faith inspire us in ours. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We ask that you would pour out the abundance of your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace, your strength through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The one in whose name we offer our prayers who died and rose again and promises to return for us, who loves us with an everlasting love. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. morning, friends. Our scripture reading from today comes from Genesis chapters 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered water God called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. God also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts on the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that God had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God, God had finished the work God had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all God's work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work of creating that God had done. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Who are here today, and especially those who are for alumni and parent weekend, it's great to have you here. And I want to invite you to stand and take a moment, share a word of greeting with uh, others who are here in worship this morning.
For those of you who haven't been around for the last few weeks, last spring I uh, asked the congregation, what uh, would you like to hear a sermon about? Uh, What questions do you have? I got over a hundred responses and realized that I may have gotten myself into something I didn't realize I was going to get myself into. The bookmarks that were just given to you, some of you have have seen these. If you haven't, please take them. But these are a list of the the questions that I'm going to be dealing with. I got over a hundred uh, he had to narrow those down to 14 sermons, maybe some of the other ones later, but uh, that, that gives you an idea of some of the things that uh, the questions have come out of, the, of what you want to hear. I realized right away that there were some questions that um, I was going to be very uncomfortable with, and we are just getting started into some of those, and one of them is the question today, because um, it's talk about creation and, and all the ways in which... The, theories about creation, you know, this is way, way outside of my area of expertise. I'm not a scientist. I'm not the son of a scientist. I'm not even the relative of a scientist. I, you know, this is not my thing. And um, so at least I have enough sense to go talk to people who it is their thing. And so I did some of that. So if you get to the end of today and you say, I really don't like what you had to say, you come and talk to me and I'll tell you who to blame because I went and talked to them. But we had some great questions and we, we polled our children as well and they, they have continued to come up with very interesting, insightful questions. And, and one of the questions that they, they were asking, they're asking questions like, um, how do dinosaurs fit into the whole creation story? And I'm assuming they mean the big scary ones, not the purple lovey one, Barney. But <clears throat> though it might have been that too. How does that fit into the creation story? Is a whole other sermon. But <clears throat> but you know they're asking like the how did the water, how was the land and water when the land's under the water? And you know very thoughtful questions. And one of the questions that came up a number of times was how old is the Earth? How did it all get here? How did it start? I think at the at the one of the primary questions that we think about when we talk about creation and the world is how, how did everything that has been made, how did everything that in the world and the universe, how did it get here? And there are basically two theories, I think. One is that it happened by random chance. It is what I guess you would probably be labeled uh, atheistic evolution. But there is, no, there is no creator, there is no being that started things. It just happened, spontaneously happened. And there are theories that scientists are uncovering that they believe prove that. And, and so they, there is the this, this sense that it, it is random chance. And that's how everything came to be. And of course the other side of that is that there was some being who started this. Some being who, who began what we now know as the universe, the earth, the world, everything about it. And the science is trying to prove, uh, I shouldn't say this, some scientists are trying to prove that what we believe in creation is untrue. And there is some animosity there. Uh, James Watson, who was one of the scientists who discovered DNA, made the statement that in, in an interview that his purpose for pursuing that that information, pursuing, trying to uncover DNA was not to, for the betterment of humankind. It was not to keep innocent people out of prison or to make sure guilty people went to prison. He said the prime motivation for his life's work of uncovering DNA 
was to prove that God was unnecessary. Wow. And so, so there is certainly a sense, a great division between two different theories of thought about how the world got here. I would suspect, because you're here, the majority of us would believe in some being creating what we now know as the universe and the earth and the world. And I'm not going to assume that that's everyone, but I would suspect the majority of us believe in creation in some form. But what I'm finding as I, as I explore that, as I talk to people, as, I do, as I've done reading, what I've discovered is that there are a wide range of theories within the, the parameters of creation and creator. I think they can be summed up, and that's where you get to how old is the world. And you have people who believe it's 10 to 20 billion years old, the universe and the world maybe four and a half billion years old, and other people who believe the earth is maybe five to 7,000 years old. And there are various theories along the continuum of those, of those perspectives. And on the one hand, you have what's basically called theistic evolution, that says God created, he started things, and he started at the, at the very uh, most primeval cell and let it go. And let evolution take its, its, uh, take its turn and, and create what has gotten there. He just started it, and then evolution took it from that point. <clears throat> there are some people who believe that in the process of that, there are places where some pretty big jumps needed to happen, and God stepped in and made those jumps. There are some problems with that theory, as there are with all of them, I guess, to some degree. One of them is what you do with human beings in that process. Another theory is intelligent design. And this is, uh, this is a sense of realizing that, or at least hoping, that what we see around us in creation, human beings, the world, the creative world... All of it points so clearly to a being who started it. It is so well designed, so well put together. How could it happen by random chance? I've always thought that of all the people in the face of the earth that ought to believe in creation, it would be doctors. Because you, they know the human body better than anyone and see how the human body functions and heals itself and, and, and takes when something is out of kilter, the body works to fix that so often. And it's amazing. How could that happen by, human chance, by chance? Those theories tend to be old earth. And again, there's, there's nuances to them, but they tend to be old earth. And the other theory is young earth, and this would be, this would be folks who believe it's five to 7,000 years old, the earth. And the root of that is looking at Genesis 1 that we just read and, and interpreting each day as a literal 24-hour, six days that creation takes place. And that may well be the case. It may well be that it, that it is 24 hours, there are six days, and God does the creating during that period of time. The thing that we have to keep in mind about all of these theories is that they are theories. We, they are based, as people view them, on what they see as evidence, but they're theories. There is a level of faith involved in whatever we believe because none of us were there. None of us were witnesses of it. 
And so we're working backwards and we're making assumptions all along the way. And even, the, even believing in the Creator, we believe the Scripture is true and we believe the Scripture tells us that. But even that is an act of faith to believe. It's one of the problems with intelligent design because some people who believe that say that proves there is a Creator. And I think that's going a little bit too far because I'm not sure we can prove anything. We believe. We believe with all of our hearts. But it's, a, it's an act of faith. And as we, as we think about these various theories, and you think about Genesis 1, the question is, do you take that literally or is it more metaphorical, figurative? Charles Hummel, who worked for years for um, InterVarsity, was asked one time, do you take the scriptures literally? And he said, well, I take the literal parts literally, and I take the figurative parts figuratively, and I take the metaphorical parts metaphorically. And I think that's true. There are different genres of scripture, different ways of looking at it. And we, we have varying opinions about that. And a lot of it has to do with that word, the word day, Hebrew word yom, that is used in Genesis 1. It is in scripture often used to mean 24 hours. But it's also used sometimes metaphorically, figuratively, to talk about just a period of time, not limited to 24 hours. And so it can, we run the spectrum. One of the things that I think happens because of these theories is that we have developed in some circles of the church a sense of antagonism about science. And part of that is a defensiveness because, as I said, science, there are some scientists who are antagonistic toward people of faith. And too often the church has responded in kind. And so there is developed in the church, in some places of the church, and an animosity toward science as though science is evil. And it's not. We forget that in the early stages of the church, science was, science was, was supported and encouraged by the church. Most of the scientific discoveries were, were things that the church said, yeah, go do that, go explore that, because they saw science exploring the vastness of God's creation and just helping us understand what God had made. And the fact that people take the scientific discoveries and turn them against God doesn't mean science is evil any more than the ways we perverted sex means that sex is evil. It's a gift of God. We can pervert anything. We can skew anything, and we do, because we are fallible human beings. But science in and of itself is simply discovery. It's learning, and God blesses that. Someone said to me recently, uh, I, I, think I, I, I think I see God watching us discover what he's made the same way that we do that with, as our children discover things as parents. You know, if you've had the opportunity of a, one of, of your child or uh, a child that you've been around, all of a sudden the light going on for them and they came, come running to you and say, Mommy, Mommy, look what I just found. Look what I just discovered. Isn't this cool? And maybe it's something as simple as I've just realized that 12 times 12 is 144. I get it. And we could say to them, look, that's so trivial. What are you talking about? Why are you getting excited about that? You don't know anything. I know a lot more than you about that than you do. Or to say, you know, at some point in time, you're going to, you're going to learn so much more than that. Even next year, that's going to seem like nothing. Why are you getting so excited about it? We don't do that as parents. We're as excited as they are. 
Because their, their eyes are lit up, their face is excited, they're excited. They've had a new discovery. And I think God feels that way about us as we discover new things about his world that is so vast and so intricate at the same time. And instead of seeing science as evil, we embrace new knowledge. We embrace learning. I think sometimes we, people are afraid of science because there, there is in the back of our minds a fear that science might really discover something that proves that God doesn't exist. And my question is, what kind of God do we believe in? I mean, do we really believe that human beings could discover something that would disprove our God? Then we don't really worship the God that the scripture tells us is God. Our God is way too small and too limited. And the God we worship, the God of the scriptures, is vast and unlimited. And while people may take science and skew it and turn it just like we do everything, we rejoice in the discoveries because at some point they're going to uncover new things about God and his great world that he has created. And so the question we come back to as one child asks is, I wonder why God created the earth. And that really is, in my mind, the key question as we look at Genesis chapter 1. Why did God create the earth? And my question is, why does God tell us the creation story this way? And let me just share a few things with you. I think, for one thing, we need to remember that the creation story is not intended to set a timetable. It's intended to reveal the otherness of God. You see, you've got to remember the context in which Genesis 1 is written. It is written in a world in which surrounding Israel are all these other nations in the ancient Near East who have their own creation stories. And all of those creation stories tell them that the world begins, the earth is created, and everything on it is created either by accident, by chance, as a punishment. God, Scripture alone says God intended to create. God intends to create, and God alone intends to create. This story is about God. Just as the Bible is not primarily about us, it's about God, the creation story is primarily about God too. It's not about saying, can we figure out a timetable of how God did everything? It is to let us know that everything that is made, all the things that are mentioned in that first chapter, were made by God intentionally because he loves to create. It's a part of his being. He loves to bring things into existence. And that also then implies about why we're here. That God doesn't just love to create and doesn't just do it intentionally, but he creates us intentionally. And he chooses to create us because he wants a reciprocal relationship with us. Again, all the other ancient stories, human beings are created as by accident, as a punishment, because the gods don't want to do things and so they create human beings to do this work for them. Human beings are viewed as evil. They're viewed as a nuisance. 
Only the biblical creation story says God creates because he wants relationship with us. And that says something about our value and our worth. We're not accidents. We're not just random. We are created by God. We are chosen by him. We are loved by him. We have worth and value. And God wants relationship with us. And the only way you can have a genuine relationship is if you risk people rejecting you. We've all been through the experience, I suspect, of of the risk of asking someone out on a date. It's gutsy. You know, you put yourself out there. You can be rejected. But that's how relationships are. And God creates human beings knowing very well the risk that he's taking. And he's right. They turn on him. They reject him. But again, unlike all the other gods who when human beings reject them, they become vengeful and spiteful and they reject them back. God, though, letting them, having, letting them face the consequences of their choices from that moment begins wooing us to himself and ultimately sends his son to die on a cross to redeem us. God loves us, wants relationship with us. And this creation story is trying to help us understand that. And that also, and he gives us the task of taking care of this beautiful world that he has created. He says to to Adam and Eve, "You, you rule over the world. You steward the world. You till the soil. You, you make the work to get the plants to grow. You take care of this world. We haven't done a very good job of that. I don't know why exactly, but for some reason, the church has a pretty poor track record of taking care of the earth. You would think that of all the people in the world, people who believe that God created the world, that God brought this thing into being and loves it and cherishes it, that the people he created would say and who follow him would say, let's do everything we can to maintain it. Let's do everything we can to to make it be fruitful and multiply and grow. Let's take care of it. But for some reason, we haven't. It makes me wonder if one of the reasons why science, scientists, some scientists are antagonistic toward the church is because they've watched us. And they see this perspective of, well, that doesn't make any sense. They say they, God created and, it, and he's done this beautiful job of creating and then they just ignore it. Or worse. But it is good. You know, in, all, in the ancient worlds, again, the, the, the earth is not good. It's a nuisance that the gods have to take care of. That's one reason some of the stories, they send human beings to the earth. But God writes in Genesis, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Vic Hamilton says, instead of translating that word, it's good, he says, it's beautiful. I like that. Because on the one hand, good means sort of have a a moral character to it, good as opposed to bad. But beautiful has an aesthetic value to it. And we look at it and we're inspired. We look at creation, we can, we're inspired. It's good, it's beautiful, and we care for it. And it's not just about ecology. 
We are, we are stewards of God's world as his representatives on the earth. We are, we are people made in his image. And we are here to represent God on this earth. To care for what he's made and to help people to see his nature, his character. And that leads me to a thought I had about the seventh day. I was thinking about that this week. About the six days that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. And it made me wonder, what if Genesis talks about six days in order to highlight the seventh day? What if the whole purpose of talking about six days is simply to draw our attention to the the importance of the, the vital nature of the seventh day? Because you can't count to seven until you've counted one to six first, right? It wouldn't make any sense otherwise. Maybe it's not about 24-hour period or any period of time. It's just about getting us to that seventh day. Because God says the first six days, they're beautiful, they're good. The seventh day, God says, it's holy. And he sets it apart. I find it fascinating that Genesis says God rested from his work. God needs to rest. I mean, does God say, man, I am exhausted. This is killing me here. Wow. Had no idea I was going to get into all of this stuff. I got to take a break. I got to sit down for a while. And God said, he's in a rocking chair, putting his feet up, saying, man, I need some time. Probably not. He does it because we need it. And the, the writer of Genesis wants us to understand that God has put the idea of Sabbath, he's built it into creation, into the land, into everything about it, including us. The whole idea of Sabbath is so vital to everything that God creates and how we understand his creation, including us. I mean, Sabbath is big. It's mentioned almost 150 times in the scriptures. It's one of the big Ten Commandments. It's probably the one we ignore the most. And yet here it is, right at the very beginning. Rest. Sabbath. It's vital. And our refusal to to practice Sabbath implies we can take care of the world better than God can. Our refusal to, to practice Sabbath implies we believe our value and our worth comes from what we can produce instead of being loved children of God who have value and worth because of Him making us. And look at where it's gotten us. Our refusal to practice Sabbath has gotten us into an ecological mess because we don't trust God. Practicing Sabbath is one of the most profound means of trusting God we have available to us. That we stop Every six days and say, I'm going to rest. I've got a lot more things I can do, but I'm not going to do them because I need to stop. Walter Brueggemann says, God is not a workaholic and we shouldn't be either. He stops. He rests. He's not like Pharaoh driving the Israelites to do his bidding and to, just, and to make them work day in and day out without any breaks. That's not our God. Will Willeman says that practicing Sabbath is one of the most radical, counterintuitive things that Christians can do. 
every Sunday we practice Sabbath by simply refusing to show up for work. Because we realize we need rest. It's built into who we are. We need to stop. And this idea of Sabbath is not to prevent us from doing things that we want to do. It's not about what we can't do as we typically shape it. It's about what we can do. It's a gift of God. It's where we don't have to live under the bondage of work for a day. We can relax. We can spend more time with God. We can spend more time thinking about God and being out in God's creative world and being with one another, learning from each other and inspiring each other and worshiping God together on Sabbath. And I think one of the consequences of not practicing Sabbath is seen in the way we treat each other. As I've been reading and thinking through this and talking to people, it's become evident to me that among all the different creation theories, there is a lot of animosity about differences of opinion. If you go on the internet and you start reading things, there is a lot of vitriolic, vitriolic language about you don't believe the way I do, and there's a lot of, of nasty stuff out there. And I'm convinced part of the reason for that is because we don't take time for Sabbath, take time to, to experience God in, in profound, wider, bigger ways. And so therefore, it's no wonder that we don't act like Jesus toward each other. And yet that's what we're called to do. All of the theories about creation are just that. There's a lot of ambiguity about how God brought this world into being. But there, is, there are some things in Scripture that are unambiguous. And one of those things is how we treat each other. And the command to love each other. Let me paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13 for you. If you come to the place where you've worked out exactly how God brought this world into being. And it is without error. It is without compromise. It is perfect. And you have not love. Your conclusions mean nothing. You've missed it. Not too long ago, someone reminded me that it's not enough to agree to disagree. That's the language we tend to use. And that implies I'm right, you're wrong, and someday you'll see the light. And I'm going to keep badgering you and hounding you until you do. So we need more than that. The church needs to think deeper than that. We can disagree, but in our disagreement, we treat each other with love and respect and humility and openness. Because quite frankly, I don't have all the answers. And God has revealed things to you that he hasn't to me. And I can learn from you. As opposed to how we often disagree with each other. And in these theories of creation, instead of seeing my theory as all right and yours wrong, as me winning and you losing, we instead say, what's God revealing to us together? Let's learn. 
that's the people of God being the people of God. Because ultimately, the creation story is really not about answering our questions about how things came to be. This story is not about the time frame that it took for the world to come into being. It's about worshiping God, the creator, who is our hope. That's what it is. And you can have different theories about how this happened, but the one thing we cannot, that we don't disagree about, the one thing that is unambiguous is God is at the center of it and God is the one we worship and God created. You look at Isaiah chapter 40 and the writer says that that Israel is complaining that God's forgotten them, that, that God doesn't pay attention to them. And it says, do you not know Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, the creator, will renew their strength. They will soar like wings on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Our hope is not in a theory of creation. Our hope is in the creator. When you boil all of this down and the question, how long did it take for God to create the earth? I don't know. And I'm okay with that. Because the most important thing is not how God did it. It is believing that God did it. And it leads us to worship. And it leads us to love. It leads us to to acknowledge Him in all that He has made. And to find in him life that is good, very good, beautiful. Heavenly Father, as we think about your world, we thank you for how you've made it, created. There's a lot of things that we don't understand. But there are things that you've made clear. Help us to see that. Help us to bow in worship and thanksgiving and love through the grace of Christ. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
receive the benediction. May the Creator God bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.